I hope you have your Bibles. Did you ever know that Cornerstone is a Bible preaching church? If you come without your Bible, you're supposed to feel like you're coming without something really important to you. So I want you to make sure that when you walk through the doors of this church, if you didn't bring your Bible, there's always going to be one for you. It's going to be now Psalm 139. That's today. That's what we're going to be looking at. But I want to encourage you, bring your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible, open one up right in front of you, that blue one. I don't have the page number for you today, but if you could get that open, just go right to the middle of the Bible. You're going to be in Psalms and get to 139, and you're going to find it. And while you're opening that, January 13th, 1984, President Reagan, I love that man, he issued a decree, a proclamation, designating January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. That was 1984. So January 22nd, 1973, some of us were alive, I was seven years old, that was when the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand in every state. So now, now the third weekend, the third, particularly the third Sunday of every January annually, it's set aside for churches to celebrate God's gift of life. The weekend, however, is not just to honor the life of the unborn, but to lift up the God who gives life, making all human life sacred. Now, I wanted to say that again because this is the platform for what you're going to hear over the next 35 to 40 minutes. All human life is sacred, and it's all going to be embedded vertically. There's a reason why every single living human being is a sacred creature. That reason is not us. That reason is not me. That reason is not you. The reason is God. And Psalm 39, better than any other psalm that I'm aware of, makes that abundantly clear. It's one of the most important psalms in the Bible. Some of it's going to be some of the most important, some of the most familiar. You're going to be familiar with a couple of the verses. And if you, you know, I'm going to make it like a, I don't know, maybe an audacious promise to you. I'm really safe to say this because it is the living word of God. It is transformative by nature. But I'm going to say this. If you will meditate on the truths of Psalm 139, I'm going to give you four major headings of that today. But if you meditate on this scripture, not so much my sermon, but the scripture to which my sermon is pointing, if you meditate on this, listen, it's going to transform you. You will have more confidence in your life than you have ever had before. Your faith will be stronger than it ever has. And listen, your worship will be more beautiful and robust than it's ever been. This is an extraordinary psalm. So let's get right to it. Four points I'm going to give you. The first one is this. God knows you perfectly. Let's read it. Look at verse 1, Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now this is David writing this. This is David, the king of Israel, writing this. He's writing this as a personal psalm to God. Now listen, that was used corporately. You're going to see that through the choice, very deliberate choice of the pronouns that he uses all through this psalm. 
Oh, Lord, here it is, twice, you have searched me. That's a pronoun. You have known me. That's a personal pronoun. Not corporate, not us, not we later on. Nowhere in this psalm. This is a very personal psalm that is meant for the entire body of God's people. Look what he says. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. That word searched, beautiful. It's not going to be anything surprising. It means to examine with close scrutiny. But how it was used might be surprising. So see if you can remember this. You might want to jot this down in the margin of your Bible. The Jewish people use this word. It was Hebrew. We've translated it to English, the word searched. Their word for this, they use to describe digging deep into a mine or investigating a legal case. This is scrutiny. This is digging deep. This is a lot of time to get the backstory. This is what this word searched means. It's what God does as he looks to the very center of your being, the very center of my being, so that we are known by him. That word known is a very personal word. Look at it again, verse word, you've searched me. Verse one, you have searched me and known me. A very personal word. It means knowledge. Now listen, this is key. Knowledge that is gained in two ways, relationally and experientially. This is not information. This is not hearsay. It's not God knowing about us or having heard of us. This is God knowing us because he's experiencing life with us. He's relationship. He is in a relationship with us. Now, this is a psalm that is particularly rich for a believer. In fact, a non-believer, and there may be some here, a non-believer cannot identify with this psalm. It's a psalm of intimacy. It would be like a person that's never been married trying to understand intimacy that can be gained in a marriage. You get it theoretically. You've heard it. You may have seen it from your parents. You may have seen the love. You may have seen how they can communicate a whole world of information in a glance. You may have observed it through your friends and in their marriage. But if you've not yet experienced it, you, all you have is a theory on it. All you've got is an observation on it. Not this knowledge. We are known by God experientially, relationally. Now, this is important. It cannot be said that God just knows of you. That does not get anywhere near the intimacy and the beauty of this psalm. Now, look at the pronoun again. In fact, just take a moment. I'll ramble for a while while you do this. I do that for 40 minutes every Saturday, every Sunday. Look at down through the psalm and look at all the pronouns. This is so beautiful. Look at all the personal pronouns that David sprinkles in there. Me, my. And what you're going to take away from this is that God personally knows you. He personally knows me. Yet not only personally, now listen, this is now another layer. Not only does God personally know you, God perfectly knows you. That's a different way of nuancing this. His knowledge of you is not just experiential, it's not just relational. Listen, it is complete, it is 
perfect. This is God's knowledge. In fact, a really smart guy that has gone on to be with the Lord, A.W. Pink, he is a theologian. He wrote this about God's perfect knowledge. Listen to this. God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual. All events, all creatures of the past, the present, the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never overlooks anything. Now listen, I told you at the beginning of this that if you meditate on this psalm, it will transform your life. It will make your faith stronger, your worship more intimate, your adoration more exalted. It will be an amazing transformation in your life. You will have confidence that you've never had before. If you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with how you look, your image, your self-esteem, why don't you function as well as other people at the workforce? If you're struggling with any of this, this is your antidote. God has the fix for you, and it begins in your mind, and it will transform your life. God knows you personally. He knows you perfectly. Do you recall that Genesis chapter 2 ends with a very interesting poorly understood verse and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed do you remember that they didn't yet know the terror that you can go that you can get from hebrews chapter 4 and no creature is hidden from his sights but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts listen adam and eve had nothing in their lives of which they did not readily invite God to look or each other to look. Now listen, that's not true for any of us. That's not true for any of us. Every single one of us has a set of curtains over our lives that we only open for a select few. Some get them wide open, very rarely. Some get them partly open. Some people don't get anything open. It's just an opaque wall. Adam and Eve, they had their curtains flung open. They didn't even possess curtains. There was nothing in them that they were ashamed about. They were wide open. That's what it means naked. It just doesn't mean without clothing. It means that their hearts were completely bare, completely vulnerable. That's not a comfortable word for any of us to each other, to God, and they were fine. In fact, they were at peace. Until they sinned and grabbed the nearest fig leaves, the Bible says, very large leafy leaves, so tough and fibrous you literally can sew them, almost like clothing. They grabbed the nearest fig leaves, discovered that trees were a futile means to hide from God. That's where they were when they heard the sound of God walking through the garden. They were hiding behind trees. See, the good news of the gospel is that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins, our blemishes, our defects are removed, and we we're given peace. You can bring open the curtains to God voluntarily. Listen, he's going to part them anyways, but you can voluntarily part them and know that God has already removed 
from you all that has displeased him and made you righteous, made you right. The word has justified you. All through Christ and his death and his resurrection. And when you know that and you actually begin to believe that, and I don't know any Christian who when they got saved was able to do that, that you grow into that, you grow into your confidence. Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But to know this and believe this allows us to treasure God's perfect knowledge of us, just like David did. He did not fear it. See, when the righteous sin, now Christian brother and sister, I'm referring to you, to me, when we sin, and God's holy gaze settles on it, and we're moved to confess and repent. Listen, that's how you voluntarily open the curtain again. If you've got sin in your heart, I'm promising you, you've got the drapes closed to God and to other people. But when you confess it, it means two things. It means to, to agree with God. That's what the word confess means, to agree with God and to cast it to him. When you, when you confess that sin and you repent of it, you're able to open the blinds. You're able to open the drapes. And all of a sudden, God's perfect, full, personal knowledge of you is welcome. It does not create anxiety. It brings peace. His knowledge of us is exhaustive. David could not have made this more clear. Read with me verse 2 through 5. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Now listen, part, a little out of time out here. Infomercial. That means when it's still in your heart, because Jesus says everything you speak comes from your heart, where it's stored up. So God's seeing at the heart level. So here we go again. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. You know what David's saying is he, he knows, God knows what we're thinking at every moment, even the intentions of our heart that we are ignorant of. Listen, you and I, our hearts are deceptive. We don't really, really, truly know what's going on down there until oftentimes we see the evidence of it. But God sees it clearly. He sees it perfectly. He sees the words that we speak before we speak them. He knows our hearts. He knows our words. He knows our behavior, everything about each of us. And look at what the response in David was in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Here's what he's saying. This is beyond anything that I can identify with because we don't have God's omniscience. We don't have God's perfect, full, relational, personal knowledge. So when we, when we meditate on God's ability to know every single nuance in our souls, everything that we are doing and intending to do, even before we do it, when you meditate on that, it brings out an adoration in you. It ought to bring out, Christian brother, a wonder in God. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, even though I really can't identify with it. God's knowledge of us can be comforting, and I'll give you an example, very practical one. I ride 
bicycle a lot. And I keep riding throughout the winter. I've got the gear for it, so I ride. And in late December, in the first week of February, I had, I think, around seven flat tires. I just had a rash of them, most of them coming from those little pieces of cinder that are spread on the road when, when the ice and the snow comes. Punctures the tire, and it'll rub against the tube until it just perforates with a little pinhole. I had seven of them. It got to the point, now listen, I rode last Monday. It's 21 degrees out, 13 real field, plus wind chill. I rode, and I, before I left, I made sure Matthew and Denise and Carissa, all of them each have a car, each of them have a phone. Andy is absolutely worthless to me in this moment. <laughs> I love him, though. I made sure each of them know I am going out for a ride. Get your phone on, keep it with you. I need to know that you can come get me because when you've got a layer of sweat and it's real feel 13, even five minutes without pedaling, you start to get really, really cold. Knowing that they're there for me, knowing that they care for me, knowing that they will come and get me, gives me the peace to do 20, 25, 30 miles. Listen, if you don't know that, there's a bit of anxiety. I didn't have any anxiety because I knew they were there to get me if I needed it. See, this is the knowledge, this is the, this is the peace that the knowledge of God's omniscience or the awareness of God's knowledge and his love and his care can bring. He knows you not so that he can find things to pick on you for or to judge you for. He knows you so that he can love you, that he can take care of you. To be known, and I just, I, this is so deep. It might be the deepest thing I'm going to tell you. So I'm going to ask you to really contemplate this. To, to be known Think husband, wife, think children, think parent, think best friend. To be known is what makes a relationship intimate and beautiful and satisfying. So I, I watch these couples when they go out to eat. Denise and I would go on dates, and when I see a couple at a restaurant and they never spoke in one word, they're looking down at their plate of food, and I'm going, wow. I actually pray, God, don't let me be like that. Don't let Denise and I become like this. But then we saw another couple. We're out to eat. We're just watching them. It's kind of odd, probably, for them. But I couldn't help it. They're in their 70s, maybe 80s, and they couldn't keep their eyes off each other. They couldn't keep their hands off each other. They're ta we can overhear them. It was a small restaurant. They're talking about everything, and they're laughing, and they're smiling. And again, it reminds me to be known by someone is what makes the relationship intimate and beautiful and strong and satisfying. God's knowledge of us is what makes life sacred. If you want to talk about the sanctity of human life, it begins with God. It becomes sanctified when God knows you. It starts vertically. But David continues with another attribute of God, and it's going to get even better. God is with you perpetually. He's with you always. He's with you perpetually. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Instead of fearing or being troubled by God's knowledge or God's presence, David is praising God that his presence is everywhere. So listen to his praise 
as we read it, starting at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, now listen, look at me for just a second. The wings of the morning is just the, the movement of the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. That's what they call the wings of the morning. So if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the outermost part, uttermost parts of the sea, even there your, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So the, you got to remember Israel is this narrow little landmass, right? To their east is the Arabian Desert. To their west is the Mediterranean. So David's giving all the compass points, north, south, east, west, his response. It's not one of cringing fear that God's presence is always with him. It's one of reassurance that God's presence comes with God's sustaining protection. See, trying to escape God is futile. You cannot do it. It's what he makes clear next. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the, as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I remember, now we've, we've got four kids. So I got a chance, and I, I studied counseling, so I got a chance to have a confidence that whatever I would mess up in my children, I can counsel them through. That's my prevailing hope. My jokes are really flat tonight, aren't they? But I got to see a lot of things in action. One of them was object permanence. When you have a baby, when you have a little toddler, you're going to understand this. You're going to see this. Object permanence develops in a toddler as they understand that something keeps existing even when you can't see it. Haven't you ever seen a really young baby boy or girl, maybe not baby, but very young boy or girl and playing peekaboo, and when they cover their eyes, they believe you can't see them, right? Or when they're playing with a ball, and the ball rolls under the couch, and they quickly, almost immediately lose interest in it, that's object permanence. It hasn't developed yet. Object permanence develops when they go under the couch to get it, when they quit thinking that you can't see them when they cover their own eyes. In a Christian, object permanence develops when we understand and when we welcome the truth that God is always with us for our good, knowing everything about us perfectly. That is, spiritually speaking, object permanence. God's not going anywhere except with you. And his perfect knowledge and his perpetual presence is seen beautifully and what David is about to say next, number three, God has created you purposefully. God has created you pur purposely, purposefully. I will never, ever forget this moment, ever, until I am no longer on this earth. It was a moment of worship. It truly was worship. It was the moment that Denise and I, pregnant with our first child, went to the doctor and got our first ultrasound. And I could see on that monitor my little boy moving. I could see life growing in my wife's belly. I could watch his heartbeat. 
I could see his hands and his feet move. You know what I would often do, fathers, if your wife is expecting, can I encourage you to do this? I would put my head down against her belly often, and I would speak, and I would talk, and I would tell him how much I love him, and I would read the word of God to him, and I would remind him of how important he is, and the dreams, and the hopes, and the plans we have for him. You know, I will never forget what happened minutes after Matthew, our oldest, was born. I will never forget this. The nurses had taken him, and they had taken, he's about six feet, maybe eight feet away. He's under that sun lamp, that heat lamp. They're cleaning him up. They're stamping his feet and his hands with that ink stamp, and he's crying. He just won't stop crying, and I'm with Denise because it was an eight-hour, which is not too long, but it was hard. And I was with her, and I was by her head just telling her I love her, that the ba- our baby is born, wait till you see him, trying to help her get her breath. But I'm hearing Matthew crying. And all of a sudden, while I'm still holding on to Denise's head, I look towards Matthew, and I said, Matthew, it's Daddy. He stopped instantly and moved his face towards me. There was an electrical charge that went through my body from my feet to the top of my head. That's when I knew that's my son and he knows his father's voice. That's the intimacy, Christian, that you can have with your heavenly father. That's the intimacy to know that God, your father, has created you purposefully. He has a plan for you. He's with you every moment of your life. Did you know that 22 days after conception, a preborn baby has a heartbeat. 22 days. Or 60 days after conception, the baby has brain waves. And at seven weeks, her limbs have developed. Even you can see the baby at seven weeks having hiccups. By eight weeks, she's fully formed, evidencing her dominant hand. They know which one will be the dominant hand, even at seven weeks. Responding, she does, to touch. Just a week later, at nine weeks, she can grasp objects. That's actually at nine weeks. And it's at nine weeks old that a baby girl can develop her own ovaries. It's incomprehensible to me how anyone could believe that a baby inside a mother's belly at any stage is not a living human being. That baby has been made by God. She's hardly the blob of tissue that abortion providers say she is. She isn't a clump of cells. She cannot be dehumanized as simply, quote, unquote, the contents of the uterus. You know, years ago, I will not forget this. I still cannot believe this. Years ago, I was completely caught off guard when I preached against groups that help women get abortions. And a person from our church was so mad at me, she left and has never returned since. This is probably nine years ago. I had a friend recently, passionately, arguing with me that a woman has absolute rights over her body. No man ought to tell her that she cannot or should not get an abortion. The issue of a woman's rights over her body, listen, it's a hotly defended one. It's politicized. But no woman and no man 
has ultimate authority over his or her body. And no person has the right to end the life of an unborn child, the most vulnerable, innocent demographic in any society. And listen, if that's offensive to you, it betrays a much deeper issue, which is this. Who has ultimate authority over you? The Bible says God does. Now, having said that, I want to really quickly say this, because I have people that I love who have had abortions. And if you've had an abortion, there is likely a very soul-deep, unrelenting pain that you are struggling with, even hearing these words. I get it. God offers forgiveness. He can free you from that guilt. Jesus is called the balm of Gilead. He will, he will heal the wounds of your heart. But then he will use you to teach others the beauty of his life that he has put into that baby, into that womb, in the form of that baby. For he is the author of life, and his purposeful power of creation makes human life sacred. Look at what David says, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret in the womb, intricately woven in the depths of the earth in the belly of the mom. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, you may want to note the meaning of the words fearfully and wonderfully. Fearfully means with great respect and care. Let me tell you that again. I think you probably want to write this in your Bibles. Fearfully means with great respect and care. Wonderfully, oh, I love this. Wonderfully means uniquely marvelous. Uniquely marvelous. So you've got fearfully that means with great respect and care, wonderfully means uniquely marvelous. And what do you begin to get from this passage? Well, you get this. God pours his care into every person, making every single human being unique. This is part of the sacredness, the sanctity of human life. He is fashioning the baby. He is forming the baby, knitting the baby together, intricately weaving the baby with a unique, marvelous purpose. Listen, it takes sometimes a whole lifetime to understand that purpose. And he's doing all the work in the secret place of the mother's womb. God has thoughts for an unborn baby. And they are vast in number, David says. They're uncountable. They span not just the nine months in the womb, but all eternity into the future. Now, friends, God not only sees every day we will live, he has written them in his book before we were born. That's what David is saying. This is what Ephesians 2.10 says. What talents and personalities and predispositions he's giving to that baby, what handicaps, what gifts, what challenges he's giving to that baby and how he or she will impact the world where in eternity that person will spend. Listen, God is thinking all of these thoughts. Now this is maybe part of the best sections of this sermon that I can tell you to to move your faith to a robust level. 
every single one of us has God's undivided attention. You know, I've heard that we really truly cannot multitask. I've heard that that is impossible for any brain at a high level brain functioning to do. You really literally cannot multitask. The brain is incredibly fast, incredibly strong, incredibly powerful, but nobody, according to this research, can perform a two level or a two high level task at once. Yet God can. So listen to this. He doesn't divide his attention between all of humanity, doling out a little bit of it to each person. Have you ever contemplated this? All of God's thoughts right now, think on this, right this moment, in every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, of all your entire life, you've got all of God's undivided attention. He doesn't have just a little bit to you and a little bit to Tim Ackley and a little bit to the people on the other side of the pew. You've got all of it to you all of the time. God has you in the very center of his thoughts. You're never on the periphery. He's never so busy like I am often on my laptop when Andy, my littlest one, would crawl under the laptop and grab my face and say, Daddy, it's time for me. He used to have to do that for me to my shame. You don't have to do that to God. You don't need a rap on the door of his temple to get his attention. You've already got it every second, all of it. Human life is sacred and precious because God's care formed you and his attention stays on you, which is what David is about to say. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That's the power of of God's attention. You're always in the center of his thoughts. All three of those form, and it formed within David, and it can form within you, and it can form within me, what you're going to see next. Point number four, finally, God will keep you protectively. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. And you read that, and you're wondering, like, maybe, like I am, you're kind of caught off guard. What is this? I mean, this was a really, really awesome psalm, and now it's like R-rated. What happened? This was really beautiful. And at first, it doesn't really seem like David has a very godly attitude. It's like something happens in the middle of writing this, and it puts him in a pretty bad mood. And we don't let our kids talk like this. But yet, here's David. Now watch this. Listen to me. Look at me for a moment. This attitude in verse 19 went a long way, forms a lot of the understanding of why God said of David, he's a man after God's own heart. That word after, it's in the Hebrew and it's in the New Testament, it's in the Greek. It has a very wide range of meaning. Two main ones, it means to imitate or it means to hotly pursue. The second one's in view, I believe. He is hotly pursuing 
God. He lived a lifelong pursuit of knowing God, of learning to love God. It produced in his heart. Now listen, here's why I'm saying this. It produced in David's heart. Here's the effect. It made David really protective of God. It made David really angry at anybody that attacked God. It made David defend God with everybody. They speak against you, verse 20, with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I mean, this is pretty acerbic. This is salty language. But this is David so grieved because he's so in love with God that at the deepest level of his soul, there was nothing more terrible to him than someone who would attack his God. But you know what he's doing? You're going to see it in the next two verses. He wants to make sure he never slips into that kind of an attitude. He knew that you're not only saved by grace, you endure by grace. God's grace has to be with us every day or else we can slip into the path of the wicked. He knew he needed the enduring grace of God in order to love God. So what's he do? He asks God to search his own heart, to continue to keep him protectively close to God. Look what he writes, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. This is David going, it is so painful when people attack my God. I hope I never do that. God, show me. Show me if there's anything in my life that is moving in that direction and get it out because I don't want to be like this. Because God knows him perfectly, and he's with him perpetually. And because he created David purposefully, he knows exactly, he knows precisely how to protect David's zeal and love. Friends, the unbeliever is terrified of God's searching gaze. Whether they can admit it or not, it usually evidences itself that terror and defiance or buried under a layer of justification and rationalization. But we, Christians, who have a relationship with God, listen, we've got to learn to invite God's loving look into our hearts, knowing that he loves us, he cares for us. Whatever he removes from us, whatever spiritual surgery he performs on us, he's going to anesthetize us with his grace and his love. He's going to remove it so that we can love him more and love one another better. This is what God does. He always brings good to his children's lives, even in moments of pain. Now listen, you won't know that you won't truly believe that until you thoroughly, fundamentally know that God knows everything about you. He's with you always. He created, created you perfectly, purposefully, and he will protect you all the way to the end of your life. All human life is sacred. God knows every person perfectly. He is with every person perpetually. He created every person purposefully, and for the Christian, he will keep you protectively. Amen? Amen. Now, I want you to watch a video 
as we get ready to close, and then we're going to close in prayer after that. But I want you to watch this video, and I want you to be amazed in your heart at the sacredness of human life. 